Okay, um, good evening everybody. We're going to talk tonight about one of the most significant events in the history of Adventist um, education and agriculture in particular. And that is Ellen White and her experience with agriculture and the founding of Avondale College. Now to, um, to understand this we need to go back bef to years before that. Ellen White wrote her first um, articles on education in 1872, an article, Proper Education, and in that she advocated the education of the whole person, the physical, mental, moral and religious aspects. And she stated that education, quote, embraces more than merely having a knowledge of books and that a portion of the student's time should be spent in physical labour. She went on to say that in connection with the schools there should have been agricultural and manufacturing establishments. And um, if you want the references for these quotes, they're all in that paper and more. So that was 1872. And at that time we had no Adventist colleges at all. But two years later, 1874, was the founding of Battle Creek College, the first Adventist college. Now, when this was being talked about, Ellen White again recommended a rural site where there could be agriculture. And they looked at a piece of land, 160 acres, but it was considered to be too expensive. I understand that James and Ellen White used to go out travelling around the, the area, around Battle Creek, looking for a suitable property for it. But the 160 acres was considered to be too expensive. And um, then they found another one, the former fairgrounds on the outskirts of Battle Creek, 50 acres. And she was happy with that. And it was generally thought that that's what they'd get. So she and her husband had to go away to California. And while they were away, the good brethren who made the decisions bought 12 acres in town opposite the Battle Creek Health Institute. So from 160 we go down to 12. Of this they promptly sold five for housing lots to get money to build the, the college. And so that left them with seven acres. And it's said that Al Ellen White wept when she heard of this. So seven years later there were some problems developing at um, Battle Creek and she wrote another article, Our College, in which she said a more comprehensive education is needed. It would be well could there be connected with our college land for cultivation and also workshops under the charge of men competent to instruct the students in the various departments of physical labour. Much is lost by a neglect to unite physical with mental taxation. And about another year later, she wrote another article, The Importance of Physical Training. She said, Every institution of learning should make provision for the study and practice of agriculture and the mechanic arts. While a part of each day is devoted to mental improvement, let a stated portion be given to physical labour and a suitable time to devotional exercises and the study of the scriptures. And then there comes a little further on a memorable statement 
if the youth can have but a one-sided education, which is of the greatest importance, the study of the sciences with all the disadvantages to health and morals, or a thorough training in practical duties with sound morals and good physical development, like um, Darren was talking to us last night. So she says, which is of more importance, the, the academic study or a thorough training in practical duties? We unhesitatingly say the latter. In one um, statement, a slight variation of this, she inserts a piece that says, if one must be neglected, let it be the study of books. I think that's what it says, if I'm just going from memory. But she says, in most, with proper effort, both um, may, in most cases, be secured. So Battle Creek College um, ran into some problems that arose, and after several years it closed down for a year or two. And during that time, while it was closed, they were able to start two more, South Lancaster Academy that became Atlantic Union College and Healdsburg College in um, California. Healdsburg had small grounds, but it was in a fruit growing area and they did offer some classes in gardening and fruit growing. Incidentally, I understand that well, they had to move it out later it was said that while men slept, the enemy sowed houses around the college. So thus it can be seen that the early steps to incorporate agriculture into Seventh-day Adventist schools were f faltering at best. Anyway, the time came when Ellen White was asked to come to Australia. There were various reasons. One was that she was asked to come to help them start a school in Australia and I'm always amazed at the audacity of the Australians there are only very few I think there was only about 500 Adventists or something and they started talking about starting a college but anyway this was a great opportunity to carry out the um, divine instruction for education and especially the emphasis on manual training and agriculture because they're starting from scratch they could do it the right way this time. So 1892 they set up a temporary school in Melbourne, the Australasian Bible School as it was known and um, this was before the days of safety regulations. You can see those fellows standing up on top of there. But one interesting thing about this, although it was in the city there were two acres of land around it and Ellen White wrote to her son Edson later that at Melbourne your uncle Stephen Belden, he was married to Ellen White's sister, I think she died by that time, at Melbourne your uncle Stephen Belden ploughed a piece of land and worked the soil thoroughly and raised a most profitable crop of sweet corn for the school. Everyone told him not to undertake it but he was determined to show them what could be done and so that was the um, temporary school down there in Melbourne. But of course, they had plans to establish something more permanent. And Ellen White, as we've said, was keen that it should be done the right way this time. So what were her aims? What was she wanting to get at 
in this new school as um, concerns agriculture. Well, the first was she wanted it to be a model school. She wrote, the light which has been given me regarding the work of the Avondale School is that we must not pattern after the similitude of any school that has already been established. And she wrote again, our school must be a model school for others who shall establish schools in Australia and throughout the world indeed. And again she wrote, this was to be a sample school. It was organised on the plan that God has given us and he prospered the work. No breezes from Battle Creek are to be wafted in, she wrote. And so that was the first aim we could list, that she wanted it to be a model school for other Adventist schools. The second was she wanted to have it as a demonstration of proper education, as we've mentioned, the all-round spiritual, physical and mental. She wrote, for both children and men, labour combined with mental taxation will give the right kind of all-round education. The cultivation of the mind will bring tact and fresh incentive to the cultivation of the, s of the soil. And she wrote, in the school that has started here in Kurenbong, this is after they'd selected the site, we look to see real success in agricultural lines combined with a study of the sciences. We mean for this place to be a centre from which shall irradiate light, precious advanced knowledge that shall result in the working of unimproved lands so that hills and valleys shall blossom like the rose. And she added that the spiritual lessons to be learnt are of no mean order. And again, that the students are to not to look upon the school land as a common thing, but as a lesson book which the Lord would have them study. Its lessons will impart knowledge in the spiritual culture of the soul. So she was very strong on the, the spiritual aspect of it. Other aims we could say that she had in mind was to train missionaries. She said the usefulness learned on the school farm is the very education that is most essential for those who go out as missionaries to many foreign fields. And one that we've sort of touched on, she wanted it to be an object lesson to the community. She wrote, we have located here on missionary soil and we desire to teach the people all around us how to cultivate the land. They are all poor because they have left their land uncultivated. We are experimenting and showing them what can be done in fruit raising and gardening. And a fifth um, aim we could list was to help the poor. And we'll come back to this. She said, we want to demonstrate what will be done with the land when it is properly worked. When once this is done, we shall be able to help the poor who live in Australia in a far better way than by giving them money as we have had to do in the past. And you'll remember that at this time Australia was in the grip of a severe depression and it was more severe in Australia than in um, most other countries and there's reasons for that which I'd be happy to tell you afterwards. And so as we've said this was only a temporary school and they were looking for a site for a permanent school. 1894, she wrote an article, Where Shall We Locate Our School? in which she gave the example of John the Baptist 
He was educated away from the contaminating influences of the city. She wrote, Never can the proper education be given to the youth in this country or in other, any other country unless they are separated a wide distance from the cities. And she went on to say, He who taught Adam and Eve in Eden how to tend the garden would instruct men today. There is wisdom for him that holds the plough and plants and sows the seed. There must be education in the sciences and education in plans and methods of working the soil. There is hope in the soil, but brain and heart and strength must be brought into the work of tilling it. And I notice there's um, a book for sale there titled Hope in the Soil. That's where that statement comes from, out of this letter. So they started looking for a site for this school they wanted to set up. They looked at a couple of sites in Melbourne, they, in Victoria rather, out of Melbourne. They came up to New South Wales. They looked at two sites down near Picton, below Sydney. One reason for that was they heard the climate was very good and they had thoughts of putting a sanitarium there as well as a, a school. But they found that one of those sites at least was in the a fog belt, and there were other problems. Down at Dapto on the south coast, they found a site with super excellent in quality, um, Willie White said. Where's our... You're familiar with Willie White, the son of Ellen White, and he had to bear much of the responsibility of establishing the school and selecting a site and doing the business um, work of it. Concerning this site down on the south coast, he said it was super excellent in quality with springs and never failing streams. And he exclaimed, oh, if we were only rich, this would be the place. But he lamented that we want so much and we have so little money that we are very hard to suit. So in March of 1894, Wesley Hare and Ainsley Reeky, they're two good old Adventist names, they came up to Morissette where there were several tracts of land available. There was one block of 1,280 acres that they um, considered looking at. It had a third of it in rolling land suitable for orchards, the remaining two-thirds of alluvial land for cultivation and one mile of rib river frontage. And from what I can gather, for those who are familiar with Kurenbong, it was on the southern side of the creek from about what we call Red Hill down across towards Stockton Creek and down toward Mandalong. The bottom corner of it would be about where you leave the freeway to go into Morissette. So they looked at that site, but there were problems with that and they were disappointed and there was some trouble with getting the title for the land. So they went away disappointed. A group of them came up um, to, to see it after Wesley Hare and Ainsley Reeky had first visited. And a larger group came. But as they were going away, they met a contractor working on the road. And he told them of 1,500 acres on the other side of the creek that had been offered for sale at auction, with the highest bid being 800 pounds. He suggested that the vendors would sell it for something between 800 and 1,000 pounds. And so 
as we've said, it was just across the creek. It didn't quite line up, but the, the southeast corner of it lined up with the northwest corner of the other piece they'd previously looked at. And um, this property was known as Brettville after Mr. Brett had lived there. So it had some advantages. Number one, it was cheap. Also there was timber, there was water transport that was in um, reasonable proximity to Newcastle where they thought they could do missionary work and so on. But the disadvantages were that it was um, the distance from Sydney, which was a long way in those days, poor roads and a sparse population, so they, they thought there wouldn't be much scope for missionary work in the immediate vicinity. And also it was in a wet district where it would soon get overgrown. And Willie White wrote that much of the land about the district is poor, giving things a sad, wild look. And um, he applies to some of the people who live there too. But he said, if the price is as reported, I think we will take it. So that was around about March. They first saw it in May. Ellen White came up to visit the site and she was enthusiastic about it. She said, we are much pleased with this place as a location for the school. And she spoke about the pleasant climate and the price they could get it for. And she stated, this is, I consider, a rare opportunity and in the providence of God offered to us and we ought to have the land. So that evening on the 23rd of May they went back down to the village of Dora Creek where they were staying overnight which was near the railway station and they held a committee meeting and voted to buy the property. And the next morning you've probably all heard this story that one of their ministers Stephen McCullough who was with them was suffering badly from a, a chest ailment. Some say it was tuberculosis. And they, as they were praying, they felt impressed to pray for Brother McCulloch. And he was um, miraculously healed. I think he said it felt as though a shock of electricity went through his body. And they took this as a sign of divine approval for this um, purchase that they were planning to make. But not everybody felt as happy about it as Ellen White and some others did. Willie White wrote that nearly all the men of influence with whom we have come in contact shake their heads when we speak of the district. The Department of Agriculture, after examining samples of the soil, said it was sour and would require a tonne and a half of lime to the acre. And they got a... Um, fruit expert to come from the Department of Agriculture or wherever to give his opinion on it. And he wrote, I do not consider that more than 500 acres of the land at the outside is available or fit for cultivation. And this would cost a large sum to get in order. The balance of the land is either a very poor, sour, sandy loam resting on yellow clay or very poor swamps covered with different species of melaleuca. That's the, the paperbarks and tea trees and so on that inhabit swampy areas. The whole of the land is sour and would require liming and draining to bring it into good condition. It is my opinion that the society would be unwise to select the land I visited. But my advice to them is to obtain the best land they can 
For though it may be more costly in the first place, it will be the cheapest in the end and give satisfaction. And you've all heard the story that the man is supposed to have told them when he handed them his report that if a bandicoot crossed the land, he'd have to bring his lunch with him. It was so poor. Well, our um, brethren in Australia sent back a report to the Foreign Mission Board over at the General Conference in Battle Creek. And they read the reports and sent back word advising them not to buy the land, to delay the, the purchase of it. And some of their own men, particularly A.G. Daniels and Brother Russo, who was the man who was given the job of starting the school, evidently they were accustomed to the beautiful black soil in Iowa and they were horrified at this um, land and they were very opposed to it. And so the vote was made by the, the board or whoever to delay the purchase and to look into it further. Ellen White wasn't um, impressed with this. She wrote, It looked to me very much like the work of the great adversary to block the way of advance and to give brethren easily tempted and critical the impression that God was not leading in the school enterprise. I believe this to be a hindrance that the Lord has nothing to do with. And um, Willie White wrote later that the project, he described it as being in a fog for some time. He said, this opened the way for many to criticise our plans and to urge various modifications or changes. A strong effort was made in favour of getting a small tract, say 40 acres near Sydney, and thus have our school placed where the older students would have easy access to the city for missionary work. But Ellen White wrote, The more I see the school property, the more I am amazed at the cheap price at which it was purchased, or which was being offered to them at least. When the board went, went to go back on this purchase, I pledge myself to secure the land. I will settle it with poor families. I will have missionary farmers come out from America and do the best kind of missionary work in educating the people how to till the soil and make it productive. And so the, um, as we've said, the project was sort of in limbo for some time. And October of that year, they had a big camp meeting down at Ashfield in Sydney, which you've probably heard of for other reasons. But at while there, Ellen White wrote, As I awoke this morning, I was repeating these words to my son Willie. Be careful that you do not show distrust of God in making decisions as to where our school shall be located. And she warned him against um, showing distrust of God, seeking the advice and counsel of men who do not make God their trust and who are so devoid of wisdom in matters that they will, by following their own judgment, retard the work. They do not recognise God to be infinite in wisdom. And so on. She said how we are to acknowledge God in all our counsels. And those that are not connected with God are connected with the enemy of God. And the enemy will work to lead us, with them to lead us in false paths. We do not honour God when we go aside from the only true God to inquire of the God of Ekron. 
And so um, the brethren kept looking around for other sites and they couldn't find anything better. And eventually it was decided to go ahead with this land. Ellen White wrote later, The circumstance of securing the land rested with myself. There was so much doubt and perplexity as to the quality of the land. But the Lord had opened up the matter so clearly to me that when they discouragingly turned from the land, I said, no, you will not take it, then I will take it. And with this understanding, the land was purchased. Now, you've um, all heard the story of the furrow vision that Ellen White had. She said, before I visited Kurenbung, the Lord gave me a dream. In my dream, I was taken to the land and several of our brethren had been solicited to visit the land and I dreamed that I was walking upon the ground. I came to a neat cut furrow that had been ploughed one quarter of a yard deep, it's 18 inches and two yards in length. Two of the brethren who had been acquainted with the rich soil of Iowa were standing before this furrow and saying, this is not good land, the soil is not favourable. But one, that's one with a capital O, so you know who this is referring to, one who was often spoken in council was present also. And he said, false witness has been born of this land. Oh, this um, photo is taken, I think, about 1958. That's Arthur White, Ellen White's grandson on the right, pointing to the, the site of the furrow where it was believed to have been. But um, where were we? There, yeah, one who has spoken in council was present, said, false witness has been born of this land. Then he described the properties of the different liars of earth. He explained the science of the soil and said that this land was adapted to the growth of fruit and vegetables and that if well worked would produce its treasures for the benefit of man. I wish we had a tape of um, what the Lord told her about the science of the soil and the, the liars of soil. But we have got our brother here who can tell us a lot about the science of the soil. Well, she said, the next day we were on the cars on our way to meet others who were investigating the land. And as I was afterward walking on the ground where the trees had been removed, lo, there was a furrow just as I had described it. And the men also who had criticized the appearance of the land. And the words were spoken just as I had dreamed. Now, the um, question is, she wrote this much later, and the other writers, Willie White and so forth at the time, don't seem to mention much about it. The question is, um, when did this actually occur, when she saw this furrow? Willie White later wrote on a document about it that it was following the Ashfield camp meeting when a large committee was sent up to give the land another careful examination. I used to think that I'd heard the story how she saw this furrow in the vision and they went up and found it there and everybody immediately said this is the place and they bought it as easily as that but that was far from the truth. As we've said, a lot of the folk weren't in favour of it at all. But eventually 
they did decide to go ahead with it. And Ellen White wrote, I'm glad that my warfare is over. So in March 1895, they started on this land. They opened what was called the Industrial Department. And they rented an old hotel, the Healy Hotel in Kurenbong. On, um, it's on Baber's Road, if you know Kurenbong. And they lived in there, while they, and some lived in tents, while they went across and worked on, the cle worked on clearing the land. She wrote, about 26 hands, students, have worked a portion of the time felling trees in clearing the land, and then they have their studies in the evening. They say they can learn as much in the six hours of study as in giving their whole time to the books. More than this, the manual labour department is a success for the students health-wise. For this we thank the Lord with heart and soul and voice. The students are rugged and the feeble ones are becoming strong. And that was March when they s opened the industrial department and started um, clearing the land with the students. Willie White wrote, that when we presented to them our plans for a vacation during September, October and November, more than two-thirds expressed a desire that the school work should continue without interruption. Some of the older ones said, we have just got well started in our work. Studying, which was hard at first, is easier now, and we feel that we are making good progress, and we desire to continue. So that's... Um, what they did. It was a very dry year. It was said to be the driest year for, for, for 40 years. But it was just what they needed for work in draining the swamp and clearing those swampy areas and so the work could go ahead without interruption. And this photo was a, a little bit later when the, after the college had been, been built. And... Um, I'd say this is probably about 10 years or more later. And this is a good one. You can see, if you look carefully, the rows of vegetables growing here on the, the bottom of the picture leading up to the, the college, the old barn down there that was built by the students. And I'm old enough to remember it. So. Right, so that was um, how they started on clearing the land. And this is Metcalf Hare. You don't often see a picture of him. He was the man who I believe was the first on the site to start superintending the, the um, development of the property. We'll, we'll come back to him again later. And in August of that year, Ellen White bought 40 acres for herself, came up and lived in tents on the site and later she built this house, which you know, Sunnyside, for herself and for her workers who worked with her in pr preparing her books and so forth. That's how Sunnyside looked. And you can see Ellen White sitting there in the chair by the, by the door. And that's Sunnyside as it appeared this week. So there was a... From now on in our talk, we'll speak about her farm at Sunnyside and the college farm together because it all sort of developed together. There was a sense of urgency to get the trees planted.
before it was too late in the season. And on the 19th of August she was able to write, Yesterday, August 18, 1895, the first trees were planted on the Avondale Tract. Today, August 19, the first trees are to be set on Mrs White's farm, an important occasion for us all. And um, by the 29th of August, ten days later, Willie White could write, during the last week they have set about a thousand fruit trees. We find that it is difficult and expensive work ploughing now for we have had no heavy rain for six months but the time for planting is nearly past and we can no longer delay. I believe they had to have a plough pulled by 16 bullocks to try and break up the, the ground. It was very hard being very dry and we've heard a lot about her counsel on planting trees in the last day or so here. Not only did they plant um, trees, fruit trees, but vegetables. The letters from that time speak of beans, beet, carrot, peas, pumpkin, squash, sweet corn, asparagus, cauliflower and tomatoes and so forth. And you can read more about it in that, that um, booklet. The weather was so dry that they were forced to purchase a pump to um, war irrigate their plants on a small scale. It's described as a force pump. From what I can gather, it was one of those ones like you see on old wells, you know, with a handle and you pump. But it must have been a, a big one. It said that four boys could work on it. And so they had man-powered irrigation. But um, in due course, rain did come. And by February... Ellen White was able to write, we have a garden here at Sunnyside on a small scale and it is doing well. We have the testimony that with care taken of the trees and vegetables in the dry season we shall have good results. Our trees are doing well. Some of the orange and lemon trees are not doing as well as the apricot and peach trees. These are doing real well and I can testify by experience that false witness has been born of this land. On the school ground they have tomatoes, squashes, potatoes and melons and so forth. We'll have to cut this short. She goes on to speak about in September 1896, that's the next year, they were planting more trees and um, she said we have quite a vineyard and hope to receive fruit from our peach trees, some of which are in bloom now. She wrote... In December of that year I determined to set my trees even before the foundation of the house was built. It makes you think of that text that says to make things right in the field and afterwards build your house. She said we broke up only fur furrows leaving large spaces unploughed. Here in these furrows we planted our trees the last of September, that was the previous year. And lo, this year they were loaded with beautiful blossoms and the trees are loaded with fruit. It was thought best to pick off the fruit, although the trees had attained a growth that seemed almost incredible. And she said how they had a small amount of fruit that they'd picked off. They were delicious early peaches. We have later peaches, etc., etc., etc. And also mentions 
pomegranates, apricots, strawberries and quinces. So by January the next year, 1897, they've been there now, what, a whole year and a bit beforehand. She said, we have been living off our vegetables this year. Last year we had but few tomatoes. This year we have enough for ourselves and a good supply for our neighbours also. We are seeing the exact fulfilment of the light the Lord has given me, that if the land is worked thoroughly, it will yield its treasures. I was never in a more healthful place than this. There seems to be health in the very air we breathe. And she also writes about um, ornamental plants that they were planting around Sunnyside and how her secretaries and so on were taking an interest in it and going out and getting their own little patches of garden going and, and their flowers. She wrote in October 1898, eight, yeah, which would be now another year on, three years ago, this la the last of this month, the trees were planted. Last year and the year before, we had the most beautiful peaches and nectarines I ever tasted. Our mandarine trees bore abundantly last season. And um, our passion fruit was born continually through summer and winter for a year. And so on. Now those, we've said how there were those who opposed it. Brother Daniels and Brother Russo saw no wisdom in buying this land. Metcalf Hare, the man whose face we saw there a few minutes ago, he later said that he'd been told by when he first came to Avondale, he'd been told by people who'd lived there for 40 years that it was impossible to raise vegetables. But he grew his own garden and soon proved them, proved them to be false. It's recorded that he grew sweet potatoes so large and heavy that it was almost as much as one person could do to carry a single tuber. And he wrote, This country is particularly adapted to fruit growing. It surpasses anything I have seen in this respect. With proper attention, the land produces well in almost every line of agriculture. He said, We could not have been in a, come to a better place in which to train our young people. When coming here three years ago, I entertained very different views in regard to the productive nature of the soil and I was led to experiment with the result that I am now quite satisfied that with judicious care and ordinary attention we have nothing to fear but everything to encourage us in this industry. We've mentioned um, the trees that Ellen White had at Sunnyside um, after she left, had to go back to America, she sold Sunnyside to a family who wanted to come to the college and when they were finished a few years later it was put up again for sale by auction and this is a, um, a map showing the, the um, has this got a pointer on it? Yes, there's the house at Sunnyside there and it was divided up into, into these blocks and in the National Library in Canberra, they've got this leaflet from the auction sale. And the interesting thing about it to me is that it lists the trees that were on the property being sold, that was being sold. Um, 
on lot H, that's the one immediately around Sunnyside, 73 peaches, 35 plums, 18 nectarines, 12 quinces, 4 pomegranates, 1 shaddock, 55 emperor mandarines, 22 lemons, 13 figs, 11 thorny mandarines, 2 persimmons, 1 lime, 47 oranges, 19 apples, 12 locusts, 7 apricots and 1 guava tree. Total 332. Nearly all of these were planted in 1895, it says there, just about on that line. And in the next door block that was being sold, or also it mentioned 150 grapevines and a large quantity of passion fruit vines. In the next lot, 127 mandarines, 17 peaches, 99 lemons, and there's other similar ones that we mentioned before. Also 120 grapevines and a large quantity of, of passion fruit vines. And so um, Ellen White had to return to America in 1900 very reluctantly. She didn't want to go. She loved it here and she loved the, her um, little farm. And in fact, I've read where when she went back, she originally planned to come back to Australia. She was happy to stay here the rest of her time, but that never eventuated. So um, that's a summary of it. But what can we say was the influence of Ellen White's experience with agriculture at Avondale? We've said at the beginning that it was one of the most significant events in the history of Adventist education and agriculture in particular. So what was the influence of it? The first um, point we can say is the personal influence on the students. As um, our friend Bob Jorgensen, who some of you all know, and who I had the pleasure of meeting when he came to Australia a few years ago, he says, he sums it up by saying that Ellen White had a perception that there was significant intellectual and moral development gained by having students involved in agriculture totally apart from the fact that it provided food, etc. And the personal influence, as we've said, she was keen on character building. And as agriculture is an, aim, is an aid to that, to character building, and the spiritual lessons to come from it. And as she wrote in Christ's Subject Lessons, the cultivation of the soil will prove an education to the soul. And so it had a great influence in those respects on the students. I'm reminded of um, old brother Len Sonter. Do any of you remember Len Sonter? He was the greatest advocate for agriculture in our schools that I've ever known. I only even met him when he was an old man, although um, my father had the privilege of working with him on the college farm there in the 1940s. He told how that one time he must have been getting a bit discouraged about things and somebody mentioned to him that the work you're doing on the farm is only the scaffolding, the building, the actual building is the students who have been um, influenced by the farm there at Avondale and who have been influenced by Brother Santa. Um, another aspect of the influence 
was the influence on the community. This is harder to um, measure. But from the early, early in the peace, people started coming in from the surrounding area to see what was happening and started taking notice. When they were first planting those trees in 1895, she wrote, Mr. Smith, who was recently moved to Kurenbong, and also the keeper of the police station, were on the ground. And both these lookers-on begged for Brother Russo to sell them a few trees, which he did. And so, um, right from those earliest days, the surrounding people were looking on and were taking an interest, and it was inspiring them, as it mentions here, to plant more trees of their own. And even in um, more recent years, um, the Avondale College Farm was always looked upon as a sort of a, a leader in agriculture around that area. Um, I remember the wife of one of the, the dairy managers there made the remark that it was looked upon as a model dairy farm for that um, hunter area. And the, the dairy... Oh, here's a... A photo, this would be from the 1940s or 50s. This is Dr Murdoch, the Scotsman, who came to be a, the principal, who was a great agriculturalist himself. Here he is standing with some of the corn. Yeah, you can see it above his head. What else have we got? Oh, picking beans there at, on the college grounds back in those early days. This, is, this would be from the 19 because you can tell from some of the buildings. Um, you remember that earlier picture where you could see rows of vegetables at the bottom of the picture? That would be this sort of thing here. You can see vegetables growing there. And around here you can pick out orchard. And um, for those who know the place, old bro Santa told me that they had orchard from Dora Creek right across here to Sandy Creek. Plus there were other patches of orchard moreover in this area and different places. Well, this is from the 1980s where there were... Um, some of you might have met Tony Voigt. He used to teach a subject there, an elective in horticulture. And this is some of the students' gardens that were being grown at that time. This would be... 1988 and you can see some of the, the dairy cattle down behind it there in the paddock. This would be not far from where that picture of the, the furrow is supposed to have been. It was probably over here somewhere. Yes, we mentioned the dairy that operated until about 10 years ago but it, um, it developed a very good reputation. They used to breed champion cows, some that had the highest yields and so forth in the state and they used to win prizes in the shows. I was told that at one show they were asked not to exhibit anymore, give somebody else a chance to win the, the prizes. So um, oh, another thing I could mention about influence in the community, they had a garden under Tony Voigt again in the 1980s and later, probably up to early 2000s, it's called the Ho Garden. 
help others eat, H-O-E. And he, they used to grow quite a garden that was of benefit to um, students, particularly some of the married students who were very short of money. And this garden was a great help to them and many of them worked in it also. Um, another aspect of the influence of Ellen White's experience there was the influence on other Adventist colleges. We'd said how it was her intention that the school should be a model to demonstrate how the Lord's ideal for our schools could be put into practice. And one modern day author says by March 1897 seven descriptive articles about the experimental institution, that's Avondale, appeared in the review and their impact on Seventh-day Adventist thinking in America proved incalculable. And we heard mention of um, E.A. Sutherland and Percy McGann, and they were over at Battle Creek College at this time, and they were inspired by what they heard coming out of Australia, out of Avondale and what Ellen White had written. And so they were instrumental in moving that college out of Battle Creek. Oh, here's the, the dairy again in the, the buildings in the distance. How do we get this to advance? Here we are. Yeah, they were instrumental in moving Battle Creek College out into the country to a rural site where it became known as Emmanuel Missionary College. And it's said that their goal was to develop a school that would be the Avondale of America. And um, that became today Andrews University. And our American brethren can correct me if I'm wrong, but I understand that they still probably the only college we have that teaches agriculture on a tertiary level. And Sutherland and McGann at um, Emmanuel Missionary College, here's a picture of them in those early days digging potatoes and bagging up potatoes there at Emmanuel Missionary College. And this machine here fascinates me, this potato digger. Like We've seen potato diggers that run off the power take off on a tractor. But this seems to be the same sort of thing and it's got these wheels with these spud grips on it and I presume that it was geared down so that it, the motion of the machine along the ground drove the, the chain to lift the potatoes. Mm, now we get to something interesting. You remember that Sutherland and McGann at Emmanuel Missionary College eventually with Ellen White's um, encouragement, they moved down to the south and started the Madison School. And there's the book on Madison, I noticed, for sale over there in the dining room. If you haven't read it, buy one and read it. It's inspiring. And they were instrumental in um, starting Madison. And this was really um, copied on Ellen White's um, instructions. And from its inception, they, agriculture was a big thing there to the point where student labour rather than cash was accepted for um, tuition. And here's a later picture of a fellow picking these eggplants at Madison. Very inspiring story, picking peas at Madison. 
and Madison was instrumental in influencing a host of other little schools and that were set up around the place and um, still exist today. There are many institutions that are modelled on the Madison plan and so we can say that the influence of Avondale extended even to to those schools that exist today that were through Madison. And another aspect of the influence of the Avondale experience was the influence on Adventist schools in the Pacific Islands. Avondale graduates, of course, were appointed out to the islands to work and to set up schools and so forth, and they took with them the um, work ethic and the work-study idea that they'd learned at Avondale with them to, to the schools they set up out in the, the Pacific. And Alan Sonter, who was the son of the agriculturalist that I mentioned, he, um, Alan Sonter was a teacher and spent oh, decades out in the islands in our schools, and he was an agriculturalist in his own right. But he pointed out that there were other schools, not Adventist schools, in the islands that had to have agricultural programs and work programs just for survival. But he wrote that Seventh-day Adventist education, the Seventh-day Adventist education system in the Pacific is unique in that it considers the work-study ethic to be part of its basic educational philosophy. The vital role of Avondale has been the provision of generations of teachers who have experienced firsthand the benefits of work coupled with study. This philosophy can be directly attributed to the philosophy of education advocated by Ellen White. I believe that the work-study program has, in the islands particularly, has been successful because the work component has not been seen as a necessary evil but as an integral part of the education and a healthy balance to the pressures of study. And the last um, point we could list under the, the influence of Avondale and Ellen White's experience there would be the influence that it's had on Adventist agriculturalists everywhere to this day. As our brother pointed out this morning, much or most of what Ellen White wrote about agriculture was written at, um, at Avondale while she was there in Australia. And so those of you who are reading that today, you're part of this Avondale agricultural experience of Ellen White's. And so we can say that um, the establishment of Avondale College was a unique event. It was the first occasion in the history of the Seventh-day Adventist Church when the educational philosophy given to Ellen White could be fully carried out. Her emphasis on agriculture was a major part of her educational philosophy and with the Lord's leading was well demonstrated at Avondale. The influence of her agricultural experience at Avondale has had a major and far-reaching influence that in many ways continues to this day. So um, there's much more that we could say, but we've got to cut it short. But um, I'm told that I should ask, does anyone have any questions?
No round. Um, maybe not. <laughs> Madison seemed to capture more people's attention. And it's been a great, um, great thing. There's Madison-type institutions have sprung up everywhere. Any other questions? Brother Iram James, yeah, that's a. I'm glad somebody asked about him. Yeah, he was a a um, man from, or he lived on what's now the outskirts of Sydney, I believe. And he used to, I think, from memory, that he was had a job driving a coach, but he lost his job because of keeping the Sabbath. And Ellen White heard of how they were in um, financial difficulties, and she um, invited him to come up and be her, her farm manager at Sunnyside. And the house that he lived in still exists just off to the side of Sunnyside. But he, um, she had great respect for him and when she went back to America over to Elmshaven, she invited him to come over there and be her farm manager. And it's very interesting, as it's been pointed out, that of of all the people she could have chosen, she called for this man all the way from Australia to be her farm manager. But if you want to know about him, there is a little book written by um, one of his descendants, Dale Galusha, the manager of the Pacific Press. He's written a little book about the life of Iram James. And incidentally, he still has some relatives. There's one at least I can think of who goes to the, the church that I attend. Well, they had no option. They had to. They had to live in tents until they got things going. Was there another? Which one is? Oh, the book on Iram James. I don't know. I, I wrote to the man and he sent me a copy. But whether it can be bought anywhere, I don't know. Or whether it's just a, a one-off thing. But, I'll, thanks for asking about that. I'll try and find out something about it. So are we all done? Okay, I think it's a good time to close with a word of prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that we've been able to spend a few minutes reviewing um, your leading in our past history. We're told that we have nothing to fear for the future except as we forget your leading and your teaching in our past history. We pray that you will help us um, not to forget these things and to learn from your leading and your teaching and not only to learn from it but to put it into practice today within our sphere of influence wherever we can. So be with us now tonight. Bless every person here and may we all have a a safe and comfortable night and bring us back again in the morning to hear more wonderful things we pray in Jesus name Amen This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio 
and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.